Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, if you're a glass half full person, you like to find the good in things that happen, well, this next story is for you because it turns out there are some some small silver linings to what we have gone through with this COVID-19 pandemic. Turns out it is making some Canadians more comfortable asking their employer to accommodate their needs. This is according to a survey of more than a thousand people commissioned by hiring a job site indeed.ca. What the survey found is that people are more comfortable asking for things like adjusted working hours, uh, more latitude, deciding where they would like to do their work as well. So let's find out more about what people are saying they want these days when it comes to their job environment. Jody Caston joins us now, Managing Director of Indeed Canada. Jody, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, so why do this? Why do this survey? Well, there's been a great deal of discussion about the impact of COVID on the Canadian workforce. We've seen job losses, we've seen challenges with unemployment, and then the shifting ways of work. The work-from-home model uh, has been discussed a lot, whether you love it or hate it. And what we wanted to do is see how the pandemic has actually shifted people's sentiment around their jobs compared to pre-pandemic life. And has it? It has, absolutely. Um, So while in pre-pandemic life, employees and job seekers prioritized values such as culture and socialization and office environments and challenging work, we're starting to see a significant shift towards prioritizing more flexible hours, higher paying work, and the overall feeling that Canadians are now more confident to express these requirements to their employers. And that's also shifting, that they're not afraid to speak up and have these conversations. Right. So people may have kind of wanted this before, but they didn't realize that it was possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so now they're having those conversations, which is good. Okay. So what surprised you the most when you looked at this? Well, that a growing number of employees and job seekers now feel comfortable making those demands about their working locations, their schedule, flexibility, their hours, nearly 55% now compared to pre-pandemic where we only saw 49% were comfortable asking. So when you think about the impact that the pandemic has had on people's lives and concerns over health and safety, potential demands on caregiving, um, and that's been a big uh, issue for a lot of the workforce. It's forced people to really think uh, and evaluate what's important to them in their in their working lives and their careers. Now, were there any differences like by province? Our survey mostly focused on a national scale, but the sentiment was con- sentiment was consistent across all provinces and regions. I guess the question here too, Jody, is that like employees may feel more confident in asking for this, but how are employers responding to that? How do they feel about it? Well, the good news is that there's evidence of cautious optimism among employers. Um, In November 2020, Indeed reached out to 251 employers across Canada to gauge their sentiment around hiring and workplace trends moving into 2021. 
And when asked what new policies and measures they had planned for their employees, just over half, 55%, said that they had planned to offer increased work-from-home options, which is great news. And almost an equal number, 54%, provided uh, wanted to provide more flexible working arrangements. So it could be flexibility around long commutes for employees or hours or split shifts. So this is all good news. All right. So what like what should they be doing moving forward, though? Right. Like I, I, I get as we move back into offices, I would assume at the end of this year. Do you think that flexibility will still be there? I think it will be. Yes. I think that it's really important for both employees and employers to engage in a, in a healthy dialogue about what works for um, for that particular job. Not all jobs, obviously. Um, have the option to uh, to work from home. But I think the, the key here is really to engage in that conversation uh, with your employer and with your employees. It isn't interesting, though, because it feels like even though there's so much uncertainty in the workforce these days, that employees have some, they've gotten more confidence. They have, absolutely. And I think they're realizing, um, you know, that they, they have a, a larger voice as a result of um, working from home. And also, I think a lot of companies and employers have also seen the productivity hasn't shifted too much as, as employees have uh, shifted in their work from home duties. What? Jody? do you mean t- by telling me that giving employees <laughs> what they want hasn't actually affected productivity? What? <laughs> it's a crazy thought. <laughs> it is a crazy thought. Look, took a pandemic for us to realize that. Uh, Jody, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. That's Jody Kasten, Managing Director of Indeed Canada. They took a look at uh, what the pandemic is is doing for Canadian employees, and it turns out it's giving them some confidence to ask their employers to accommodate their needs. And they found that people are more comfortable now asking for adjusted working hours uh, and also asking like where they would like to do their work. Oh, I only want to come to the office two days a week, and I want to do the rest from home. Employers are saying, all right, fine, that works as long as you get your work done. And, of course, the work is getting done. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, we love talking about space here on the show. So when we heard that there was this newly released picture of a black hole in space, we thought, well, we got to find out more about that, right? Joining us now is Avery Broderick, Associate Professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Waterloo and an Associate Faculty Member at the Perimeter Institute of Theoretical Physics. Avery, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be with you this morning, Simi. Now, could you explain to us what is so great about this new picture of this black hole in space? Sure. Uh, so two years ago, the Event Horizon Telescope uh, released its first science results, and, and these included uh, the first image in which the event horizon of a black hole imposed itself, revealed itself as a stark shadow on the surrounding emission. Uh, yesterday, the image, uh, set of images that we, we released uh, we're of the same black hole at the same time, but now we can see the polarization of the emission. And you know, polarization is this uh, interesting property of light, and anybody uh, who really enjoys going to the beach or, or engaging in water sports or uh, driving may own a set of polarized sunglasses, and that helps you reduce the glare. For astronomers, polarization uh, is really a, a pathway to understanding the magnetization of astronomical objects. And this polarized image reveals to us what the magnetic structure needs to be down near the event horizon of a black hole and how that magnetic field can then mediate the interactions between uh, gravity stage, the black hole and its event horizon and all the kind of 
scary, spooky science fiction elements of, of black holes. Uh, and the astronomical, astronomical uh, uh, phenomenology or consequences of that, the astrophysical dramas that play out upon that stage. Now, you said it yourself there, the scary, spooky stuff of black holes, right? Because I think for the average person who is not uh, into theoretical physics and astronomy, that's how we think of black holes. But what fascinates you about them? Well, I, I'm certainly uh, also excited about the scary, spooky stuff. Um, you know, it's, uh, astrophysicists uh, are people too, right? And, and we get excited about the same thing. It's also remarkable to me that uh, the, the general public perception of black holes is in many ways largely right. I mean, they're these ultimate prisons, these traps that things go into uh, but don't come out. Uh, and that makes them at times very hard to uh, hard to study, hard to observe. They don't reveal their secrets easily. But for the astronomer, one of the great paradoxes and something that does occupy a lot of my, my uh, thoughts and, and time is, is that black holes, despite being this perfect trap that things only go into and don't ever come out of, uh, seem to power the brightest objects in the universe. And they're capable of launching these light-speed emanations of magnetic fields and, and plasmas that extend their influence well beyond the vicinity of their event horizon, well beyond where they are the gravitational heavy in, in, the, in the region, where they dominate the gravity of the region, all the way out to scales of their galaxy and even intergalactic scale. So, and these, this is this mediated through these things that we call jets, these, these light-speed emanations. And understanding that interplay, how is it that black holes can be, you know, this... Uh, ultimate prison, you know, characterized yeah. by that event horizon, and still produce all of this incredible, incredibly energetic astronomical uh, uh, phenomenology. That, that's something that fascinates me. How do we get close to learning about that, though, right? Because obviously, these are very difficult to get closer to learn more about. So how can we learn more about them? Well, so this is, uh, this is exactly what has motivated the development of the Event Horizon Telescope over the past... Uh, decade and a half, is that by resolving that near-horizon region, uh, we see those places where that interaction, the interaction between the gas and the magnetic fields, the plasma that surrounds the black hole, that's really what drives the, the astronomical manifestations, really drives this uh, extreme brightness and extreme uh, uh, energy output. Um, we can now resolve that on that horizon scale and study in detail how the spooky uh, physics of black holes, how the event horizon, and, and how the details of general relativity uh, and general, relativity, uh, general relativistic description of black holes um, plays with all of that surrounding material and creates that phenomenology. So it's exactly the event horizon telescope's purpose to try to get at answers to those sorts of questions. And it's really uniquely poised to do it, being the only instrument that can really image and study the properties of that material right down near the edge of the black hole. Right. As you say, the edge, though, can we get any closer? Uh, well, we can't see inside unless Einstein was very wrong. And that would be very exciting. And we, uh, we certainly consider that possibility. And if we found evidence, uh, we'd be talking to you about that. Uh, but, uh, you know, really, we can see down to the event horizon, most of the emission that we see here comes from about 50% further out than that. 
so as time goes on, uh, we'll be able to push ever closer. Uh, but there is that fundamental limit. Right. A lot of times when we see this kind of portrayed in movies and stuff, are we estimating? Like when you, when you watch a movie like Interstellar, is that just, are we using our theories about space to talk about it? So, so that's one of the reasons why this is such an amazing time. You know, Interstellar was uh, was produced. So those are hyper-realistic images. Um, the director, Christopher Nolan, did take some liberties the details of those images, uh, but but there were there were physically accurate images produced for that movie, uh, and that kind of strong strongly lensed feature where you have the this big ball of emission where you can see the back of the accretion flow, the back of this disk of material that surrounds the black hole on the tops and bottoms of the of the picture of the tops and bottoms of that loop. Those are all realistic, but you're right; those were theoretical calculations. And just a couple of years after that movie came out, what was Hollywood magic? is now scientific reality, right? That when the, when the first EHD image was released, you know, it was making, in some sense, uh, a real version of that picture that was seen in Interstellar. It's a, it's a slightly different kind of, of system than, than I think they had in mind in the movie. Um, but this is how fast things progress now. You know, what was Hollywood uh, fantasy uh, the day before is scientific reality today. And that march is continuing. I love that. Uh, we're going to be talking to you again about this, I have a feeling. Avery, thanks for your time this morning. My pleasure, Simi. We really appreciate that. That's Avery Broderick, Broderick, Associate Professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Waterloo and an Associate Faculty Member at the Perimeter Institute of Theoretical Physics talking about the new imaging of black holes in space and what we are learning from that. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if there's one thing that really gets people going when they're driving, it is dealing with speed limits. Interesting story out of Saanich. They've now joined Victoria in asking the province for permission to introduce what they call slow zones. These slow zones would restrict motorists to speeds of 30 kilometers per hour, and more and more municipalities are thinking about doing something like that. So taking an area that would normally be 50 kilometers per hour and slowing it down to 30. So why is this gaining traction? Like, why is this uh, uh, an attractive idea? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Brent Totterin, who is the former chief planner at the city of Vancouver and founder of Totterin Urban Works. Brent, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure, Simi. Nice to talk to you. Well, this is a fascinating topic to to me. What happens to people when you ask them to go 30 kilometers an hour versus 50? Because they seem to get very upset about it. Well, people get upset about a lot of things when it when it's um, put in the context of change, what we're used to. And it's important to remember that this usually doesn't happen on every street and road. It's, it's the local, the residential streets. It's not the collectors or the arterials, which are the higher order streets and roads in our city. So where, where the speed limit would, would presumably stay 50. But on the residential streets, which play multiple roles. They're your, they're your immediate access to your home. They're also much more likely where your kids are playing or, or where there's other activities going on. And so it's always controversial, but let's be really clear what this is about. There's very few public policy things that a city can do that has a more direct effect on saving lives. And that's what this is really about, because the studies have shown, there's been a ton of studies on this in the past that show that when you reduce the speed limit from 50 kilometers to 
say, 30 kilometers. And actually, some cities have reduced it recently to 40 kilometers. The city of Calgary did that. And by the way, I often say if the city of Calgary can do this, I, I don't think most cities uh, would have a hard time doing it. <laughs> but but uh, when you reduce it from 30, 50 kilometers to 30, it goes from 5 in 10 people dying uh, from a collision to 1 in 10 people dying from a collision. And by the way, that's not even counting the injuries, of course. And that's also not counting the likelihood of a collision. The faster you're going, the more likely you are to actually be involved in a collision because you can't avoid it because you were going too fast. And, and, and add to that that particularly impactful, no pun intended, uh, rather grim pun, um, is on kids because you're far more yeah. like, it's even more likely to die uh, when you're a kid. And, and traffic collisions, car collisions, are the number one killer of young people on the planet. So there's there's overwhelming evidence that this has massive life-saving implications. It's amazing how we will talk about changing policies to save lives on other things, but suddenly when we're talking about uh, lowering speed limits in a way that usually actually reflects the, the speed limit that people most people are well, likely to go anyway. This is what I was wondering. Roads. Is it really, like you were saying, people don't like change. Is this really about people not liking change? Because my feeling is, in these areas, I think a lot of people already are going below 50 kilometers an hour. Well, sometimes the, the, the streets are just, there's a concept in, in, in urban design called design speed. Uh, and it's the speed that you sort of feel comfortable driving in because of the way the street's been designed, because of the friction that's been built into the street. And one of the problems is sometimes these local streets are designed way too wide. And, and, and they may assume on-street parking, but maybe the driveways and the curb cuts make that on-street parking impossible and you end up getting a wide street that almost feels like you're supposed to drive faster on and in, in those contexts speed limits and enforcement are probably more important because frankly in those contexts the streets are dangerous and 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 thus design speed actually has to be a part of this conversation we mm-hmm. often say calgary for example to their credit again calgary lowered their speed limits on, on residential streets to 40 kilometers. They, they, they thought about 30, but they weren't quite ready, and they wanted to, um, to, to sort of g- gradually go into it. But one of the more important things they did is that they were going to study all of their standards to reduce the design speed, because in the, posting a speed limit and enforcing is one thing, but you have to actually design your streets differently so that people don't feel like it almost... Right. It feels natural to speed on yeah. them, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So what streets do you think would work for this? Like, I understand residential streets, but are there uh, any other city streets that you think you could do this on? Well, the problem with, with trying to cherry pick streets is you, 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 there's kind of a strong logic to doing it as a whole. Uh, Granville Wood, Grandview Woodland, for example, in Vancouver is doing it at a neighborhood level. I kind of think that's one of the smallest scales you really should think about doing this. And, and other cities, better, better cities have done it at a citywide level because then everybody just gets used to it. You don't have to think, uh, is it 30 on this street is, or is it 50 on this street? Um, and so you get used to it knowing that in these lower order streets, these more local human streets where, where it isn't just about the car, it's about people. You get used to the idea that, that you just know it's going to be 30, so everybody slows down. So whether it's a school zone or not, everybody is slowing down in general. So I, I'd less, I'm less likely to pick 
specific streets, certainly I'm more likely to pick kinds of streets. And I think it's the right thing to do to do this on residential streets, the lower order streets. I really don't think anyone has a credible argument about uh, slowing down on those speeds when it's so obvious it will save lives, including right. kids. But on the, I, I've seen very few cities try to do this on the collectors and the arterials. And that's frankly where when people are in a rush, that's where they um, think to, to go faster anyway. And the, sp- and the streets are designed for that. And it's less likely to have other interactions with people on those kinds of streets. Although I have to say, people really but, need to be a lot more careful and slay that, slow down on those streets. Well, too. this is what I was thinking, because like Vancouver being Vancouver and the way it is has been designed, a lot of these arterial streets also happen to be high pedestrian areas, it, right? Like, true. like a street it's like true. Broadway. And, and is, Broadway is super busy, super lots of pedestrians, uh, and yet people are speeding down it. And the, and the infrastructure often is inadequate for pedestrians in terms of sidewalk widths and such. Even though it's a busy street, we design the same kind of sidewalk width in some of these streets as, as on a local street. So pedestrians, there's a whole concept in, in urban design called Vision Zero, which is get pedestrian cycling uh, uh, deaths from collisions with cars down to zero, or at least significantly reduce them. The, the, the speed limits is a big part of that conversation. Probably the single most important part of that conversation is to get people slowing down. One of the things I lament is that whenever I hear a media story, uh, one of the things you hear from the media or the police is speed was not a factor. And what they actually mean by that is technically the person wasn't speeding. And so they say speed is not a factor. Of course, speed is a factor. It was a factor in whether the collision would happen in the first place. And it's definitely a factor in the consequences of that collision. But they're just saying they didn't technically exceed the speed limit. But it doesn't answer the question, was the speed limit too high in the first place? Right. Well, Brent, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. Appreciate it. It is Brent Totter and the former chief planner at the city of Vancouver and founder of Totter and Auburn Works. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Well, unfortunately, February was another record month for drug overdose deaths, 155 of them. This now marks, unfortunately, a full year of that sustained spike in the number of overdose deaths. And, you know, the higher numbers are believed to be connected to the pandemic. But let's not kid ourselves. We had a big problem before this pandemic started, too. So why aren't any of the interventions really working here, putting a dent in these numbers? Let's talk more about this. Guy Filicello joins us now, a peer clinical advisor with the BC Centre on Substance Use and Overdose Emergency Response Centre. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me, Cindy. But these numbers are so disappointing. Are, are you at all surprised that the numbers continue to be so high? No. I, I mean, you can't uh, you can't predict an unpredictable drug supply. So um, it's just you know, really left up to the illicit market. It's it's just uncontrollable. And so we need to implement a strategy to remove people from that market so that they can live. 
Is it the illicit drug supply then? Do you feel like it has become more toxic over the last year? Oh, most definitely. I, I mean, it's it, it's by the day. I mean, now it's, you know, if you look back at when the public health crisis was declared in 2016, um, it was toxic then, but it's just got increasingly worse uh, over the over the last few years. And then, um, you know, we tried to implement strategies to address that, but it just doesn't remove people from that market. So you have to look at, you know, the risk mitigation guidelines that were implemented last March. I, I mean, you know, that was... Um, you know, a big step in in moving to give people something other than methadone or Suboxone, which was dilaudid, but unfortunately, um, dilaudid against uh, fentanyl is kind of like a lightweight going up against a heavyweight. You're just you're just not able to remove people from accessing that market. Now, not to say that it hasn't worked for some, but it has. But there's the other issue is that. Um, most people that need ex- access to it can't access it because the prescriber isn't willing to prescribe it. And so we have to look at another pathway outside of the medical system that allows people to have access to these drugs. So what does that pathway look like? Well, you could do, you know, you, you, you need some help from the federal government, obviously, to amend the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act so that it can be um, taken out of a prescription model and then create a model such as a compassion club or a buyer's club model where people could access other drugs. I mean, even uh, that wouldn't be dilaudid either. I think you'd have to look at, you know, just um, heroin in itself and how successful it's been not only at Crosstown, but if you look over at Switzerland and the Netherlands, it's, it's been highly successful for decades. And it's just something that uh, Canada needs to uh, implement, especially in the province of British Columbia and across Canada, um, that heroin needs to be given to substance users because it's the drug that replaced um, heroin is fentanyl. And so to me, that would be the best choice to go back to would be to bring uh, heroin. And in 2012, when um, fentanyl really started coming onto the drug market, people still had access to heroin. And now it's it's very challenging to have access to heroin. So, Guy, what, pre- what prevents us, though, from doing that? Because we hear all t- this talk about legal and safe drug supply. Where is the disconnect? Well, I think, you know, politically, there's a disconnect. I think, you know, there's not enough people supporting it there. And I think also, to um, the public um, isn't, uh, you know, they want more aspects of people going to treatment instead of giving people um, drugs and I, I, you know, you often have to look at um, the alarming amount of people dying and saying, "Well, why aren't people willing to go to treatment? Maybe treatment needs to be looked at as well." And then also um, give people the substances that they're using, uh, but give it to them that were safe. I mean, if you gave somebody a prescription, if I gave you a prescription that wasn't going to work, would you take it? Like. Probably not. I mean, why would I take something that's not going to work? So we have to really start bending our approach to meet substance users where they're at and then have the supports in place and wraparound services as well that are implemented to actually um, help them move forward. Because there's a lot more issues than just drugs um, through our province and our country. Right. So you're saying we're jumping the gun by saying more treatment. There's other steps that we have to go through before we get there. Yeah, well, what, you can't get a prescription for poverty. You can't get a prescription for homelessness and, 
you can't get a prescription for trauma. So, you know, I think we put too much emphasis on doctors to, to, to fix everything um, when they really can't. And I think the emphasis needs to be on looking at uh, a regulated supply. I mean, you don't see prescription pads at liquor stores, right? Like imagine if you had to go to a doctor to get prescriptions at a liquor store to get your alcohol. I mean, it's really the, the, the same kind of concept that we can apply. It's not something that we haven't done. We've regulated tobacco and alcohol. We can do the same thing with um, heroin. Uh, we just have to make it happen. It's going to take, you know, bold moves federally and provincially to, to make that happen. So from the words that you hear from those politicians, then, do you think the ability to make that happen is near? I think it's a lot closer than a lot of people think. I mean, I know there's conversations happening. So, um, you know, it, it starts to obviously with a, with a plan. And then, you know, obviously they, you know, at what point can you say that it's not working? It's gone from really, you know, across Canada as a, as a, from defeat to debacle. And it's now time. There's just an alarming amount of people dying. And you can't blame the pandemic for it. I mean, we've had, you know, since 2016, um, to start implementing strategies. And it just hasn't been quick enough. And that's just because the illicit drug market can change at a whim. And, and really, it does. And it changes every day. Uh, now, these benzos that are in the supplier are, are making it extremely challenging. And, and we're also dealing with, it, these are synthetic drugs. So it's not something like when we were getting heroin back in the 90s or early 2000s. This is a completely different um, uh, avenue. And, and not much changes on the street, just the one thing that has changed is the drugs, and they're just highly toxic, and people are dying because of it. Guy, listen, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thanks for having me, Sammy. Appreciate that. That's Guy Felicella, who's a peer clinical advisor with the BC Centre on Substance Use and Overdose Emergency Response Centre, talking about, once again, this horrible rate that we have and the number of overdose deaths uh, that are happening in the past year. February was another record month, 155 drug overdose deaths. When will we do something that finally makes a difference there? This is Mornings with Simi. I'm sure you've seen the pictures, right? A ship that is almost as long as the CN Tower currently run aground and stuck in the Suez Canal. And we are talking billions of dollars of goods that are being held up right now because this has happened. This multi-day blockage has resulted in almost 200 ships just sitting there waiting to get through. So what is taking them so long to push this thing out of the way? Doesn't it seem like a simple thing? Uh, it does, but it actually is not. We found Dr. Sal Marcoliano to explain some things. He is an adjunct professor with the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. He's written several books on maritime logistics. Here's what he told us. Sal, thank you for joining us to talk about it this morning. Tell me, how huge of an engineering kerfuffle is this? Uh, I think it's one of the biggest ones we've seen in a long time. When you have a, a vessel 1,300 feet long, 400 meters uh, sideways in a channel that's only 200 meters wide, being supported by its bow rammed into Africa and its stern hanging, uh, excuse me, the bow rammed into uh, Asia and its stern hanging in Africa, uh, it's, it's pretty good. And 12% of the world's trade blocked because of it. So how, what is the problem with getting it unstuck? What are the challenges here? Well, the vessel hit the embankment at a, at a good speed, about 13 knots, and it has raised its bow quite substantially out of the water. When it hit at that hard, its stern kind of slid out and now is across the channel. 
So she's aground both uh, forward and aft on the vessel. Uh, they attempted to pull her off last night during a high tide. They did the same thing again this morning, and they were unsuccessful. So what they're going to have to start doing now, they have pulled the vessels out that were behind her, so they're obviously realizing this is going to be more than a single day. So they're starting a process now. They'll have to start taking uh, fuel and water off the vessel ballast. They may start trying to take containers off her, but they've got to be very careful because of the position she's in. You don't want to take weight off just the ends because you'll put too much weight in the center. And the worst scenario here is she cracks, spills oil into the Suez Canal, but conceivably she could break in half. So they have to be very careful in the salvage. Right. How can they take containers off, though? She's kind of stranded in the middle of nowhere here. Right. They're going to have to bring in large cranes or feeder vessels to do it. And, And she is extremely difficult to do. She can only go into several ports in the world. She's an ultra-large container ship, has 200,000 uh, 200, tons, 20,000 boxes on board. So uh, you, if you see some of the images of an excavator alongside of her on shore, you get the image of how big this vessel is. Uh, it's going to be very difficult to get them off. And plus, they're not going to start removing anything until they get some engineering surveys in to determine what they can take off. The uh, shipping company has hired a, an outfit out of the Netherlands called Smit. And these are the premier salvage company in the world. They've done all the big salvage operations. They salvaged the Cossack Concordia when she went ashore in Italy. So uh, this, is, this is going to be a big operation that's about to be done. Right. 150 years of the Suez Canal that has been in use. Has it ever had a problem like this before? It's had vessels grounded before. We've seen instances where vessels will go ashore, rub up against the beach there, but it'll only close for a day. You have to actually go all the way back to 1968 and the Six-Day War that closed the canal for eight years uh, to find a similar event where this happened. And when that happened, it actually revolutionized marine transportation because vessels then had a route around Africa, an additional 4,000 miles. Uh, They decided to start building vessels bigger, economy of scale. So one of the reasons you see a vessel the size of the Ever Given is because of when the canal closed last time, you start building these large vessels. Now, the canal has grown in size. Uh, they just had a big expansion in 2015 to allow vessels like the Ever Given to come through it. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens as a result of this closure. Yeah, and what is this doing to trade? Like, I know there's hundreds of ships, right, that are backed up at this point. Well, about 50 ships a day go through the canal. The estimates as of this morning were about 175 are basically waiting to get through the canal. Lloyd's List, which is the premier maritime news agency, has estimated about $9.6 billion worth of cargo go through the canal on a daily basis. So you're looking at at an impact that's not going to just affect Europe in the short term, but it'll affect the world in the long term. That is crazy. Okay, so how long do you think, in your estimation, is this going to take? Are we looking at another couple of days here? They're going to try again on the high tides to get her off. I mean, every high tide, they'll try to get her off, but they have a problem in that the tides are getting greater every day, but come the end of the month, March 31st, the tides start receding. So they have a, they have a, a kind of a, a window here to try to move the vessel. So they're going to do everything they can to get it off. Uh, the other reason they want to move it very quickly is after a week, shipping companies are going to start rerouting vessels. They're not just going to sit there and wait for the canal to open up. So they have a time frame to operate by. If it goes more further past March 31st, it's going to become difficult. 
and they may have to wait for the next big high tide, which happens monthly. Oh, boy, what a mess. All right, Sal, thank you so much for explaining this to us today. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to talk to you. So fascinating, right? That's Dr. Sal Marcoliano with the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. He's written several books on maritime logistics, and he was explaining the whole mess at the Suez Canal right now. The picture is astounding. If you're like me, you probably wondered, well, why would they allow such a huge ship like that through the Suez Canal if you turn it sideways and it blocks the canal? Turns out they rebuilt part of the canal to make this possible. They haven't really had a problem quite like this before. I'll be watching to see how they get this thing moving. This is Mornings with Simi. Boy, this story really took off the last couple of days. It's all about a distillery over on Vancouver Island that is trying to fend off legal action over the use of certain words to describe their product. It's Macaloni's Caledonian Distillery, and the Scotch Whiskey Association doesn't like the fact that they are calling themselves Scotch Whiskey. We're going to find out how this all got started and what's going on. So joining us now is Graham Macaloni, who is the owner of the distillery in Saanich. Good morning, Graham. Hello, Sammy. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Boy, this story has really gone crazy the last couple of days. You've been getting a lot of attention. Yes, it's um, it's been quite a roller coaster, to be honest. I'll yes. bet. Has it helped at all in this fight? Um, it, it, I, I, I believe it does because you know the public opinion that I've seen thus far has been very supportive. You know, people I think see our genuine intent in all of this. Um, key thing is, you know, we've never ever called our Canadian whiskies Scotch whisky. Um, I'm very respectful of what the Scotch Whiskey Association do to protect Scotch whisky, and and um, and we would never violate that. So, what are they upset about? Um, so, you know, like many um, Scottish or, or even other diaspora that come to Scotland, they come to Canada. Um, you, you know, there's there's a pride in the home country and and uh, celebrating that, and 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 there's a pride in the, the new homeland, right, Vancouver Island in Canada. Um, and so they're upset with the fact that um, as we make this Canadian single malt whiskey, we're calling it Macalonies, which is a Scottish sounding word, which happens to be my family name. Um, they're upset with us um, using um, the term island whiskey. Well, we're on an island, Vancouver Island and Gulf Islands have about 21 distilleries, believe it or not. Um, probably more than Scotland has uh, in terms of distilleries on islands. And then the word Glen, which, um, oh, and sorry, Caledonian too. Um, Glen is Scottish word or Irish word for um, valley. And of course, um, you know, a few years back, Glen Breton whiskey were sued by the Scotch Whiskey Association and lost in the Canadian High Courts, who decided that no, Glen is just as much a Canadian word as, as a Scottish word. So the key one was Caledonian. Um, and uh, they're saying, oh, well, you know, that sounds too Scottish. And uh, But it's local history. We use it in our tourism because yeah. we have a fun story where we say, hey, look at um, when tourists come through for brewery tours and distillery tours, we say the province was originally supposed to be called uh, New Caledonia when Sir James Douglas wrote off to Queen Victoria's government. 
And um, Queen Victoria wrote back and said, uh, no, you can call it British Columbia. <laughs> and so we, we, we have fun with that, right? right. It's all part of the branding. And, and it sends people away with fun stories and memories to tell others, right? So but you, I understand that you had actually worked in cooperation with the Scotch Whiskey Association in the beginning. Like, you were very upfront with them. Yes, yes. I mean, I... Um, you know, I've, uh, it's a highly regulated environment, alcohol, and, and I've come from uh, pharmaceuticals, used to work with Pfizer, um, and uh, and uh, so I'm used to working with regulatory agencies in a proactive way. So back in 2016, um, I reached out to them uh, to make sure that we fully understood the labelling requirements, and at that point, you know, we were using the name Macaloni Distillers Limited, and uh, we were talking about the fact that we would be having a Caledonian distillery, and uh, there was no issue raised at that point. It was only it was only just in, in the last year or so that um, they started to make noise about it. And why do you think that is? Uh, you know, I, 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 well, that's a tough one, right? Um, you know, the feedback I'm getting is, oh, isn't it coincidental, um, you know, that we're winning world awards, like our whiskies are literally exactly. won world's best last year and, and Canadian best. I think in fairness to the SWA, you know, I think that, you know, they, they go out and they do a great job breaking down trade barriers with, with uh, you know, uh, countries like China or whatever. Um, they will do check counterfeit whiskies and try to stop that, which is to everyone's interest. Um, but I think they've just gone a bit too far in terms of trying to stop, you know, um, Scottish diaspora from using their own name and, and, and local regional names, you know, like, like Glen Breton or, or Caledonian. What, how do you win this fight then, Graham? Like, is this going to cost you money? Do you have to get a lawyer? What does this involve? <clears throat> well, that, that's the, yeah, so, so, um, uh, we are. Um, uh, we've, we've, we've put in place um, uh, a local law firm here, uh, Chris Wilson, um, uh, and uh, he's he's got a good experience here in British Columbia um, in this type of matter. Um, and uh, you know, we will fight this to the maximum extent that we can. Um, and um, and at the same time, because I'm intrinsically collaborative by nature. Um, then you know we will continue to dialogue with the Scotch Whiskey Association to, you know, hopefully find a, an amicable uh, uh, outcome to this dispute. Now I have to ask you about your product too, Graham. How did you learn how to do this? <laughs> well, when I was a wee lad back in Scotland, um, I actually, uh, as a high school student, worked in the black and white whiskey factory. And that inspired me to go off and, and study at university, all the way up to PhD level. I believe I now I've got a doctorate in fermentation. Um, and, um, and it was my dream to do a distillery someday. Um, specifically came to Victoria because of the tourism piece, um, uh, because there's great tourism associated with uh, whiskey distilleries. Um, and, but as we did that, I wanted to make sure that we could we could make world's best whiskey. And to do that, you have to have the best people, the best equipment, the best ingredients. And um, and so I put together, brought together a, a Scottish master distiller uh, who used to work with Diageo and about eight, 16 different uh, Diageo distilleries, myself, and um, another legend in the industry from Scotland called Dr. Jim Swan. We bought the best equipment and we used BC barley. Right? We're really pl- proud 
um, not just to be in Cal- New Caledonia, but we actually are a craft distiller using BC barley from local farmers, and that makes a better product. The BC barley here is superior, and that really has been a major contributor to us winning the world's best and Canadian best. How key is patience, though, Graham, in what you do? Because you can't just make it and start serving it, right? Like, you've got to have a lot of patience here. Yes, yeah, so legally, um, uh, whiskey uh, has to be um, matured in oak casks for three years and one day. Um, and uh, that, But normally, it might take you, you know, back in Scotland... It would take them typically 10 or 12 years before it's a fully complex, rounded, balanced flavour profile that can win awards. But our practices are really some of the best on the planet. And as a result, we're winning. We're actually out-competing the Scotch industry and winning world awards with much younger whiskies that are kind of three and four years old. And yet they're in blind tastings, out-competing the Scotch and Irish and Americans for awards. That's quite a leap of faith you have to take, though, Graham, right? Because you make this, and then you have to trust that it's going to taste great in three or four years, and in the meantime, you're still making more. It is true, and and, uh, uh, I think it's, you know, having spent my whole career in fermentation, I do know that if you put quality in, quality people in experience, quality equipment, quality ingredients, quality will come out. And, you know, when we, and of course, I remortgaged my house to make this thing happen, thanks to my wife, Andrea. <clears throat> um, and, uh, but we, we, we actually did crowdfunding, and we've got over 600 Canadians, that, whiskey enthusiasts who believe in this as well. Um, so we've got a passionate following that, that want these whiskies to be great. And, and, um, and so we all have faith, and, and it has come to fruition, of course, with these awards. Well, listen, best of luck in fighting this. I think you'll do just fine. Graham, thank you for your time this morning. Well, thank you, Sam. I really appreciate it. If anyone can support us by buying some bottles of whiskey online, that would be much appreciated. <laughs> oh, boy, that's a sacrifice for a lot of people, buying a bottle. <laughs> What's your website? What's your website? Um, it's uh, mcaledonian.com, mcaledonian.com, or you can just Google Victoria Caledonian and it'll pop up. All right. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, Amy. Take care. You too. Graham McAloney is the owner of McAloney's Caledonian Distillery in Saanich. They are fighting the Scotch Whiskey Association that is taking umbrage with the, being very picky about these words. So, yeah, you could support them by buying a bottle. Just, you know, tell your significant other that you're trying to support local. That's exactly what you're doing.